Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. All right, howdy friends. Today we are continuing our We Are series. Uh, As you know, last week we talked about uh, being a family, and this week we are talking about uh, being defined by the love of God, and this is one of my favorite things to talk about. So, Um, I'll jump in with no further ado and just let you know that I have a friend named Catfish, okay? Uh, Now, if you didn't know I'm from Georgia, if you couldn't tell by my, you know, thick southern drawl or the fact that I love the word y'all, you would know from this fact, having a friend named Catfish basically means you have to be from somewhere in the south, I think. Uh, That wasn't technically his given name. Uh, he was born Justin or something like that, and uh, he, uh, his dad owned a catfish restaurant, and so he started working there, happened over years and years and years. He's like, you know, running like tables, bussing tables and running out food and stuff like that. People started calling him catfish. So then he shows up at college, and he makes this like terrible mistake. Uh, he says, hey guys, uh, my name is Justin, but... Uh, Back home, everybody used to call me Catfish, but I don't really want to go by that anymore. And we were, of course, immediately like, Catfish, yes, we love you, and we're going to call you that forever. Now, uh, there was one problem with being named Catfish. Uh, Catfish was actually a genius. He was, like, super, super smart, um, very driven, not at all like a catfish, but uh, he had that name. So uh, that's who he was, and he was going to school to be a doctor. Going through school, he was acing all of his classes, top of his class, truly just one of the smartest people I've ever met, uh, became a doctor, started like doing all of his practicums and stuff like that, actually went on to become an OBGYN. That was like his specialty, right? Um, and uh, that put him in a weird spot because everyone knew him as Catfish, but that was not the name that you want as an OBGYN, I think, right? Like he's, you know, even now at this very moment, delivering a baby probably, and hopefully they're not calling him Dr. Catfish, right? Like I hope they're calling whatever his real name is. I don't even know. It's just catfish to me. Now, uh, can you see in that moment, like, why he wanted to be some name other than catfish, right? Like, there's something about a guy who can become, like, a trustworthy doctor, and, you know, you can, like, trust your life or your baby's life or, or whatever in his hands, and then there is a guy named catfish, and usually those two people are not the exact same person, right? And the reason why I say that is because self-definition, the way that we define ourselves, is actually like really important to how we think about whether or not we're succeeding or failing in life, uh, whether we are like who we are supposed to be, like all of these things that go into how you define your own self then have a serious impact on like the way that you think about how you're doing in life. Think about this for just a moment. Think about the ways that you like to define yourself, Right. Think about, like, you're a brother or a sister, you're a son or a daughter, you're a father, you're a mother, husband, wife, you have a job title, you have a group of friends. Uh, If you were in an 80s movie, you could be, like, a nerd or a jock or a dweeb, one of those kind of categories, right? Now, think about this for a second. I want you, in your own mind, this is going to be helpful later, I want you to think of, like, five words that you would use to describe you. You don't have to shout them out or anything like that. Just... In your mind, process this for yourself. What what would be the five ways that you would define yourself? I'll give you some time. So, why is all this important? Well, because right now, today, you walked in with a self-definition of some sort, right? And it shapes the way that you look at your own life, right? Like a nice person expects other people to be kind to them. 
A funny person expects other people to laugh at them. A wise person expects other people to listen to them. And if you're not, you know, one of those things, you might not be expecting those type of things. If you're a mom or a nurse, then maybe you're expecting people to throw up on you. If you're a banker, you're probably not, right? Like all of these things, like life just comes at you. And depending on who you think of yourself to be, you're going to react differently to the way that life treats you, right? All right, so hold on to that thought. And that thought is simply this, that the way that you define yourself will affect the way that you react to the world around you, okay? The first thing that we did as a church five long, long, long years ago uh, was actually walk through the book of John. That was like the very first thing we did as a church, which is cool. Uh, We've been through a lot of other crazy books, and now we're back in the Gospels and our Matthew series. Uh, But I love the book of John, and I fell even more in love with it uh, going through it those first uh, couple of years. It's different from the other Gospels. Um, It's a little bit, like, strange when you compare it to the three other Gospels. The three other Gospels are what we call the synoptic Gospels, and they're actually giving a synopsis of uh, Jesus' life. John is a little bit different, right? It's actually a beautiful and beautifully written book. John's like, uh, instead of to begin with like this long genealogy of people and names you don't understand, I'm actually going to start with like a little bit of poetry, right? This probably made John like a weird guy. And he tells you all about the creation of the universe and the confluence of everything that's ever happened and the culmination of all humanity into this one singular person, Jesus. And it's weird uh, in that beginning part because you can tell that this word that was God and was with God and has put on flesh and become that or become or dwelt among us was also John's best friend. Like there's this weird sort of thing that you see if you like really, really read into the book of John. He tells these stories about hanging out with Jesus. And more than the other gospels, you see a full range of emotions in Jesus. Jesus gets sort of fleshed out in the book of John. He becomes a real person. I actually love the way that John talks about Judas. This is like the biggest affirmation of this idea. Everybody else is like, yeah, there was this guy named Judas and, you know, he ended up betraying Jesus. John, all throughout his gospel, is like taking these like subtle digs at Judas, right? He's like, oh yeah, there was Judas, and he kept the, the purse, you know, the, the money purse or whatever. He was probably stealing from it. Or he would say things like, Judas, you know, the one that eventually betrayed Jesus. He's like dropping these little hints all the way through. And I think there's like a little bit of extra sort of like animosity there because he's actually looking at this guy who got his best friend ki- killed, right? This isn't just like some character in some Bible story to John. To John, this is someone who has like drastically and painfully affected his life. He gets that it's like God's plan and it had to happen and everything like that, but still he doesn't seem like he's over it with Judas. He was always with Jesus, John was. There were 12 disciples and then there were three closer disciples and John was one of those closer ones. He got to go to the transfiguration uh, and to the garden when he was betrayed. And then... As a climax to this whole story, this is like unique to John, standing there before the cross, Jesus looks at John among all the other disciples, many of whom weren't even at the cross, but John was. He looks at John and he says, take care of my mom for me. Mom, take care of John as if he were your own. Then Jesus would die. John would become a leader in the church until he was imprisoned and eventually died. But not only that, he also wrote other books in the New Testament 
Uh, first, second, and third John. He was also given leadership over Jesus' new people, the church, through his writings. And then he was given a glimpse into the future to actually see uh, and write and record the reconciliation of all things to God through the book of Revelation. And then through his writing, thousands, maybe millions of people would come to know Jesus. He writes things like John 3.16. He writes, I am the way and the truth and the life. I have come that they may have life. Now, <clears throat> the reason why I wanted to just like fanboy over John for just a moment is I want to ask the question, like, what do you think a guy like that would think of himself? Like, what would John's self-definition be? It'd be easy if you or I were John to like be like, you know, thinking, man, I'm a pretty important guy, kind of a big deal. I'm doing like really important stuff. Maybe uh, if I was writing like this book about Jesus, I would start thinking of myself, like, how do I insert, you know, this clever comment that I made in here? Or how do I, like, put myself into this story here? John doesn't do any of that. In fact, all throughout the book of John, John never even uses his own name. He only ever refers to John the Baptist, never actually to himself. So how does he refer to himself? Well, we see it. In a couple of places. Here's John 13, 23. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at a table at Jesus' side. Or John 19, 26. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Or check out this story where he sort of like unveils everything right after Jesus is resurrected. He met with Peter and with John and said, Peter, I will build my church on you and hell won't stand against it. And then Peter asked this. It says, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, and the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper, and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that the disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until he come, what is that to you? And this is where John reveals everything. He says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. That's John's only signature in the entire book. All the time, he's like talking about this guy, the disciple whom Jesus loved, disciple whom Jesus loved. And then here at the very end, he says, this is actually the disciple, the one who has written this book. Now, you can sort of like take this a few different ways people have historically. You can come up with some like hypotheses as to why he would call himself that. Uh, first is the idea that he was the only disciple whom Jesus loved. I don't think that's right, right? Jesus is kind of a loving guy. That seems unlikely that he'd be like, here's one guy that I love, these other 11. Not a big fan of, right? Like, I don't think that's the way that Jesus operates, so we're going to throw that one out. Uh, second idea is that he was Jesus' favorite. Um, I don't know. That seems like a stretch, too. You know, like, maybe. Uh, but Jesus did leave Peter in charge of the church, not John. So that's, like, a little bit different there. It seems like a stretch that this label would be to show that he was actually Jesus' favorite. I have a third idea. It is that in coming close to Jesus, it actually so radically changed his very self-definition that this was the only way that he thought of himself. Not like Jesus loved me exclusively, not like I was the only one or I was Jesus' favorite, but in fact, like, no longer am I John, now I am the person who is loved by Jesus. 
That is who he is. And I want you to think about this in terms of like names in Scripture. Names in Scripture are very, very important, right? When Gideon tore down the altars of Baal, he became Jeru Baal, which means come at me, Baal. When Abram became Abraham, uh, when God gave him the covenant after, which meant like father of multitudes. And John, here after being with Jesus, decided to define himself no longer as John, but as the disciple whom Jesus loved. The most important thing about John was that he was loved by Jesus. And out of that self-definition, he wrote the book of John. Not as a history lesson, but as a loving eulogy for an undead friend. A love story of the God-man who loved him more than he could ever know. Out of that definition, he wrote to the church telling them that they should love each other as they had been loved. Out of that definition, he was able to glimpse the end of God's good plan for the universe where he would finally be reconciled to Jesus, to the man who loved him so much that it changed who he was. Just imagine for just a moment to be John, to be so shaped by this one simple idea, this one feeling, that you are loved by God. And at its heart, was not just that Jesus was a good friend to John, not that they hung out a lot, not that he felt love from him, but at its heart was actually the gospel, that John got to bear firsthand witness to Jesus taking all of the sins of humanity to the cross. The most important thing about John is that he was loved by God. And the most important thing about me, actually, is that I am loved by God. And the most important thing about you, actually, is that you are loved by God. This is actually what happened in our central text for our series, too. You saw it as Ashley read it earlier. Uh, This section, four through nine, is actually a part of four different sections Four different stanzas in this psalm that are sort of showing different ways uh, that people are trying to find and follow God or live their life or whatever. And you saw it last week, if you were here, we talked about wanderers and family and everything like that. That was just one of the four ways that people have sort of like, you know, uh, ran away from God and then he's brought them back. But every single thing, there's only, there's only one little section that gets repeated in all four of these stanzas. And it's right there in verse 8. It says, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love for his wondrous works to the children of man. What's amazing is this is uh, written, you know, hundreds of years before Jesus would die on the cross, and yet this psalm acts as a perfect example of what the gospel is and what it means in people's life. Here these people are wandering, they're suffering out there because of their own choices. God rescues them in verse 7, and then, verse 8, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Of man. This basically is an interjection of God's love displayed through his wondrous works to people just like me and just like you. This is the heart of the gospel where we're like living our lives out, wandering around, trying to figure out stuff on our own, and all of a sudden the love of God enters into our story and resets it entirely to where now we're on a completely different trajectory. That's what happened with John, right? Here he was loved by Jesus, and because of that, he no longer would live the same way that he, would, he was like going to live. He's like broken from that trajectory forever and now defines himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's crazy to me to think you and I are loved by Jesus this much. You're loved enough by God that he would send his own son to die on the cross for you. 
would take on your sin and give you his righteousness. He would take on your rebellion and give you his life, his place as a son or a daughter of God, that he would take your death and give you his life instead, all because he loves you. And our lives are best lived in response to this simple idea that we are defined by the love of God. I believe that our lives are best lived this way for two reasons. One, because it's true. From a theological sense, this is the best thing that's ever happened to you, that you've been loved by God. Really, even from your own like personal life, like it, it would be really, really hard to try and imagine something that would be better than this. That in the grand history of the cosmos and everything that ever has happened or will happen, the best part of all of the history of humanity and the universe is that God loved us enough to send his son to die for our sins. But secondly, and more pragmatically, the reason why we ought to live our lives shaped by this idea is because it changes the way that you look at the world. See, if this becomes your self-definition, now all of a sudden the world looks different to you. A person who's loved by God doesn't get scared by rejection because they know they're not rejected by the one being that matters the most. They're, in fact, loved by him. A person loved by God doesn't get wrecked because something doesn't go their way because they know that they are loved by the God who is in control of everything. A person loved by God doesn't get broken by suffering because they know that the God who loves them doesn't use suffering needlessly. And the suffering they feel today pales in comparison to the joy of experiencing his love perfectly and fully with him forever. A person loved by God doesn't root their identity in fads and trends and hobbies or skills or abilities, but anything but the incomprehensible love of God. Person loved by God lives a life of love, freely giving that love to others because they know that they drink from an unending, eternal well of that love more than they could possibly imagine. I actually used this idea uh, this past week. Uh, I took a few days of like silence and solitude and was just sort of like processing stuff. Um, it's been kind of like a, a weird kind of season for me. Uh, we had a lot going on. Uh, we had like a, a foster kid, which many of you guys know about that whole sort of situation, which was sort of weird. And, you know, I think it came out well, but it's difficult to like define a clear win in such a weird and broken system in a lot of ways. We're coming up on five years as a church, and I'm processing where we are and where we have been and seeing so like many dreams of, of what I thought this would look like, this whole journey of this past five years, like where we would be as a church, seeing like life turn out differently than that. Grappling in ways that we aren't as like big as I imagined or as diverse as I thought we would be or like serving our neighbors or sharing the good news as well as I thought we would be. I ended up like getting in like a really like kind of down spot and spiraling some. Started thinking more about like difficulties we have and like personal relationships or problems we have with like living in Denver or like broken systems in our city and thinking about like how little we've actually done to impact them in some ways, you know? Like, like we think about like problems like homelessness or uh, problems in like the school system or even just like people not knowing Jesus. And I'm looking around in my life and I'm wondering like, man, like what impact have I actually made? Like what, what have I actually done of any worth here? Has this been five years of just like wasted time? 
feels like there are people all around us who don't know Jesus, and I feel like I've done so very little to actually change that. And in the midst of this, I was not even like working on this sermon, but it felt like the voice of God actually came to me, like in a laughably ironic way, reminding me of what I was going to talk to you all about on Sunday. That like all of that stuff, even if it is true, like doesn't even matter. Like it pales in comparison to the fact that I am loved by God. I am loved by the creator and sustainer of the universe. It's not really who I am. Who I am is loved by God, that God could look at me and see all of that and see even more than I possibly see. And even if he looked at it and said, yeah, you really failed at that all, and it gets worse and even worse than you could possibly even know, and even in spite of that, I love you so much. Here's all I want you to know today and for as long as I have the blessing to be called your pastor is that you are loved by God. You are loved perfectly. You are loved completely. You are known inside and out and loved more than you can know, more than you can deserve. You are loved in ways that make every other human love you've ever experienced pale in comparison. You're loved more than words can contain, more than human minds can comprehend. You're loved like a baby in its mother's arms, feeling fully free and safe and warm, but with no capacity to even begin to understand the depth of sacrifice and the depth of love from the one who is loving you. You can't do anything to shake this love. You can't do anything to tarnish this love. You can't do anything to lessen this love. You can't even do anything to earn any more of this love. It's already at max capacity. There's no more. You are loved by God. If you believe it, I want you to say it. I want you to say, I am loved by God. Say it with me. I am loved by God. Over the next few moments, Melinda's actually going to come up and play. <clears throat> and I want you to think, just in your own mind, think of all the other ways uh, that you tend to define yourself. Melinda, you can come on up, actually. <clears throat> close your eyes right now in this space. I know it's weird. We don't normally do this. I just made you talk now. I'm making you close your eyes. And I want you just right now to imagine in your own mind I want you to strip away all the other ways that define yourself. The only way that you can truly know that you are loved by God is by ridding yourself of all the other ways that you are trying desperately to define yourself. You are not your age. You are not your family. You're not your background. You're not your job. You're not how good you are at being a husband. You're not how good you are at being a wife. You're not how successful you are. You are not your successes. You are not your failures. You are not the things you have done. You are not the things that have been done to you. not what you can achieve or create. You are not what anyone else thinks of you. 
are someone that is loved by Jesus. You are loved by God. You are loved by God. You are loved by God. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.